0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New
1: Books in Early Modern History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Liliana Leopardi, Associate Professor of Art and Architecture at Hobart and William Smith College in Geneva, New York, to talk about her new work, a modern edition and translation of Camillo Leonardi's Speculum Lapidum which was out just, just a just a minute ago, out in 2023, with the Penn State University Press. Hello, Liliana, and welcome to the program. Uh, hello, Jana. Thank you so much for the lovely introduction.
2: Yeah. And Yes, you're absolutely right. It was just out a minute ago. I think it was up in September.
1: <laughs> yeah, so exciting, though, when it comes, to, uh, you know, because the process... I mean it's so long and you're done with the book and it goes through editing and oh, it takes forever. Mm-hmm. And then there's just probably nothing that feels quite that good is holding it in your hands. Right? And there is the baby that comes in the box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. So uh, how are you today? How are things in New York? Good. It's been chilly and at the same time,
2: exciting for me as I was... Uh, mentioning earlier to you is I'm uh, getting ready for my next research trip, so I will leave some of the cold weather behind and go to the sunny shores of Sicily.
1: (laughs) Oh, that sounds wonderful. Yeah. All right. So, hey, let's talk about this book. So the title translates into Mirror of Stones um, and it's a lapidarium. So um, my first question is, what's a lapidarium? (laughs) (laughs) You know, this is a very interesting
2: genre. It's actually a very popular genre in the medieval and early modern period. And basically it's a genre in which um, authors collected as many stones that they, in terms of names and uh, um, uh, typologies of stones that they were aware of, in which they described the natural clear or occult properties that these precious and semi precious stones were believed to have. Um, these stones could have engraved images on them or they could be perfectly plain without any images. So think of a little bit like a New Age manual of the uh, special powers of crystals, if you will. <laughs> Except that at the time it's being thought of as an actual science, right? Um, and I think for them you know, that the proof in the pudding, if you will, that these stones, whether this was a garnet, a ruby, an emerald, or uh, a coal, had these virtues hidden within it, uh, was the, uh, the, madness, the magnets, the stone that had this magical ability to attract other stones or to attract iron. And, of course, they couldn't quite explain it in terms of you know electrons and charged uh chemistry but they were or physics sorry but they were able to understand it in terms of occult properties so a lapidaria was uh, basically a manual that introduced its readers to all the possible virtues that stones could have
1: so oh, um a manual yeah i like the idea of a, a like a crystals manual we've seen those Also, it reads a bit like an encyclopedia, too, right? There's this list, this alphabetical list of all the stones.
2: Yeah, I think it really depends on which um, lapidaria you're going to consult. And there are some that are just literally 10 stones. That's all they will list. And some like the case, for example, of Leonardi who was more encyclopedic, you know, writing late into the tradition. He's writing already at the beginning of the 16th century. So he's got 300 years behind them of accumulated knowledge. And he's trying to create this huge compendium for his uh, patron in order to gift it, of course, to
1: his patron. So yeah, let's hit on those 300 years. What kind of sources is Leonardo using? Leonardo is using
2: a bevy of sources. It's quite remarkable what he lists. He lists anything from Pliny. So we are looking at uh, Roman sources, antiquities. We're, we're looking at the Scorides, Or we're also looking at more medieval sources and better known sources like the Bishop Marbaud, uh Bishop of Ren. Um, So it really depends on... Uh, Sometimes we are able to easily identify those sources. Sometimes it's a little bit more complicated. You know, in some cases, I was not 100% clear on what he was consulting. And he's consulting also Jewish sources. Um, which I thought was rather interesting, not because he certainly was not the only author that looks at Jewish sources when it comes to that hidden properties of stones. There is that the seal of Solomon, this book that so many sources, both medieval and Renaissance uh, mentioned. But Pesaro, the city in which he lived um, all of his life, had one of the most important um, Jewish printing presses of Italy. Yeah. It had the Soncino uh, uh, press.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, so I think that there must have been, as well, um, an ability on his part to consult books that might have not just been in the library, in his own private library or library of his patron, but through the Soncino, he might have also been able to access manuals that nowadays were not quite clear what they were. So that are gone now as well. Like That's like- right, yeah. Unfortunately, both in the archives uh, of the Ducal Palace in Pesaro as well as uh you know the the city archives of that time period um, went up on fire uh, in, in a fire, in you know, been smoking a fire of the 16th century. So there, there was a very little from an archival point of view that I could do. It was mostly trying to place
1: it together with the material that he's giving me, you know?
3: mm-hmm.
1: right. and i right. And published, and that process of like, well, we see this here, and we know it's here. Definitely, Someone right. else that's right it. exactly like his major
2: source it's quite clearly uh Marbode because the chapter, the way he subdivides his book is chapter by chapter he's following the same order of marbod and then there are certain moments when he moves away and he's bringing in very clearly other sources so i think he's doing it's not just that a copy job if you will he's actually thinking very carefully i'm going to follow this major source and then i'm going to bring in all these other information that he might not mention but that it's applicable to this specific stuff
1: so we've got sources that are ancient and medieval and he's writing this in the 16th century yeah that's right yeah this firmly renaissance book we've got ancient sources medieval sources yeah yeah, uh, it's, I think it's the first
2: edition because that's also the interesting thing, is that this is a, a source that gets published throughout uh, various edition gets published throughout the Renaissance, pretty much um, all the way down to the Enlightenment, uh, quite a bit. Um, If I'm not mistaken, we have an edition. of. Obviously, the first edition is 1502. And then you have edition pretty much every few decades throughout the 16th century. So you have 1510, 1516, 1533. Then you get to the 17th century. And you see the same pattern for the beginning of the 17th century. So pretty much until about the 1720s, it gets reprinted then re-edited, you know, over and over again. And then we get by the beginning of the 18th century and it just slowly dies off. Um, I think that by that point with the Enlightenment, this is no longer considered science and that there is very little interest in it.
1: Um, That I find interesting. I want to sit for a second on that, this idea that it, it's a pretty a very popular work, right? This being republished is a sign, yeah. Yes,
2: yeah. And it's published also in a French and a German edition at the beginning of the 18th century as well. So it's clearly also reaching a wider public throughout Europe. Of course, Latin would have been the lingua franca of the 16th and 17th century for sure of the educated classes. And interestingly enough, by 1750, which is when we last see it really uh, um, printed in a different language, is in English. And in English, they only translate the first two books it's um the work is divided in three books and they only translate the first two books the third book which discusses magical properties of images and astrology and astrological influences is completely ignored because i think by the time that we get to the 1750 the earlier part where we're talking about their origins of stones and how they were possibly generated following Aristotelian ideas was still of some interest. But once you get to the more magical component and astrological component, it, it it's no longer viable.
1: Yeah. And then Lapidari are going to be replaced by... Kind of like textbooks or something. Yeah. That's right.
2: Yeah. And in fact, you can see it literally in if you follow that the, the thread of books of this genre, right at the and really is happening throughout the 17th century and at the beginning of the 18th, is slowly you start to get to instead books that are more scientific. They're really interested in describing what the stone looks like rather than what the inner virtue and what healing properties it might have. Um, and you get also books that slowly start to include more and more uh, drawings and sketches of what stones and minerals look like. So we go from lapidaria into truly, you know, uh, textbooks of min- uh, mineralogy.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Which is an interesting way to think about, I mean, like, just casts a light on the way we think about big terms like the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and the history of mm-hmm. science. That's right.
2: Yeah, and it's fascinating because it's a. Uh, I think not just this lapidarium, but so many lapidaries, so so many of these uh, books that looked at these virtues of stones can help us under the light. They can be a lens that helps us understand the history of science, the history of magic, the history of religion. So you can like use these like an entry point to look at how these notions were elaborated and understood in this time period
1: I want to uh, go back a little bit too to talk about the idea of magic. So you, so these stones. Let's talk about um, what a particular discussion of a stone is going to have. Like, is there any a stone in particular you want to talk about?
2: Sure. I'm so glad that you mentioned that. I actually set aside a couple because I was like, I hope she asks me that. <laughs> yeah, there are so many interesting ones. You know, uh, what's fascinating is that first of all, when it comes to these. Stones, some we recognize today like the diamond right in fact he starts with the description of the diamond because starting in Latin is Adamas right and in my book I left the original uh, alphabetical um, list in order to also understand what was important to that right Uh, so if you have something like the diamond for example that he begins with he starts first with a description of what the stone looks like, right? So it's iron-like in color, almost like a crystal, how big it is, where it can be found. So the locations, because they seem to also make a, um, an important divisions in according to location. So he'll tell you there is the Indians, the one in Syria, Macedonia, Ethiopia, and which ones are more powerful according to their geographical location then after he's done that and he almost said this for every stone once he's done that then he will go and tell you what their um, properties are so for example for the diamond all of these diamonds have the virtue of repelling poison and this is a big concern and we will find this in many other stones perhaps the most famous of the stones was the Bezoar. And since you are, I know you're located in Northern Europe, and uh, the um, uh, the Kunstmuseum in uh, Vienna, for example, in the Schatzkammer, they have these incredible examples of Bezoars that were used by the nobility for their supposed property of repelling poisons. Um, So that is all the poisons that may be drunk. So anything that you could drink. So they also make a very specific diamond protects you from poisons that you drink, not maybe that you eat, but the
3: liquid.
2: It protects. Sorry, protects against sorcery or acts of sorcery, and removes empty fears. It gives victory in all quarrels and contentions. It benefits the lunatics and those possessed by demons. Worn tied to the left arm, it renders a man victorious. It tames wild beasts. It is good against phantasms and night terrors. It makes the wearer daring and skilled in all beings. Um, The Indian, or the Arabian diamond, as many believe, has the virtue of a magnet that is to turn the iron needle towards the Arctic pole. And some call it the diamond magnet or lodestone. So you can see just from this description that it's um You know, there isn't one singular virtue. They will mention perhaps the principle that for them is more important. And then there is a hodgepodge exactly because he's also drawing from so many different sources. So if source A mentions that it's good for poison, but source C says, hey, it's great to give you victory in hunting or in war, he's not going to make a... It's not going to provoke him uh, to ask the question of, wait a second, how can these two properties be, you know, in the same stone? That That's not how they're approaching, you know, but more like, oh my gosh, this is important and it's on the same level or on the same category, if you will, as perhaps a repelling force you know, uh, another interesting stone which I found interesting is that uh, some stones like rubies, um, actually, I should say not ruby but the carbuncle, as the carbuncle or the ethesis, uh, were believed also to have gender. So you could have both some male and female stones because some stones are believed to have the property of a generative property. They can engender other stones, which I thought was really fascinating because it indicates a completely different understanding of the natural world and an anthropomorphization, if you will, of the natural world as well. So, the epics were also was also called the Aquileus, or eagle stones, and eagle stones are you know found throughout medieval manuals. It's oftentimes called the pregnant stones. And here, quote, because just as if it we were pregnant, it holds the little stones within it that rattles.
3: It's
2: probably some sort of mineral. And as already said, some think of it as, um, uh, think it to be a scarlet collar. Uh, others maintain this flush flesh collar, plain and bright of average size. Um, I'm going to skip around a little bit. They say they they're given to someone who's about to eat Poison food, he will not be able to swallow it. So once again, we see this concern with poison. But once the stone is removed from this person, he'll be able to swallow it. So here, it actually physically blocks him from even the possibility of ingesting something that would harm you. Um, some say that it must be placed in food tied to the left arm of a pregnant woman. It prevents an abortion. Phrase placed on the thigh during birthing, it removes all danger and speeds the birth because that's another concern that we find is, of course, is on the one hand when it comes to men, sexual potency, when it comes to women is the ability to give birth safely and or to become pregnant. So fertility is an important concern. Um, and then it heals those suffering of epilepsy, chases away poisonous animals, and for these reasons, eagles place it in their nests. They believe that this eagle stone could be found Illegal nests, that's the name. It protects the eggs and eaglets from poisonous animals. It renders its wearer amiable, sober, rich, and protects them from
1: all adversities. (laughs) (laughs) I I want that. How do I get that sterile? I (laughs) think that's all right. I
2: think they're, they're just really fascinating, you know, like, for example, a, stoning, a stone like this, yeah. you found mentioned from Pliny to Dioscorides to Diadmigeron to Marbode to Albertus Magnus. So one of the things that is happening is that each author is repeating what the previous author has said, and
1: you create this long chain, if you will, of um, transmission. hmm yeah, which is also um, something, you know, that's interesting to study how knowledge goes from the past, you know. <laughs> that's right. And how mistranslations
2: then give rise to new uh, properties
0: that no one had ever mentioned before that
2: specific author.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Oh, yeah. Interesting.
1: Yeah. One little mistake then can become like, in some case, literal gospel. Right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking immediately of Moses's horns, but.
2: But me too. I was just thinking of that. I was about to say it. I'm like. <laughs> <laughs>
1: which then you know you can still hear like that's that's Mm -hmm. that's something we know about michelangelo Michelangelo in the 16th
2: century Mm -hmm. is carving moses with horns because of that mistranslation so in the tomb of julius the second in some catering bincoli in rome that wonderful statue of moses has the horns exactly because of that
1: mistranslation. Uh, yeah that which is very interesting to see how mistakes work and uh yeah. And okay. Oh, uh, yeah. That's, that's a whole other thing. Um, I want to talk about as well how the properties, the properties we're seeing, there are these physical things. So you can, I am, helps you identify what stone you're dealing with. And then things that are really like magical, but and but then also something that I might call like the natural world, like kind of scientific as well. Yeah, you
2: know, I think uh, it is for this reason that when it comes to Lampedia lampidaries... Um, the scholarship has tended to categorize them in three groups the scientific one so the author was more interested in maybe the description of stones from let's say what we would today you know think of it as scientific a little bit more like Pliny is doing that right in his book in the natural uh, uh, history now the second type instead which we find really you know from A lot of it, you know, Babylonian sources, Alexandrian sources, you know, um, second century uh, sources like the Nigerian, then those are more magical and astrological. So they're really concerned with how the stone's power can be activated with charms and with incantations. And I'll come back to this in a second because it's interesting to consider what an author in the 16th century is doing with stones that have this kind of more magical property that is activated by incantations because he's trying to avoid also, you know, excommunication and he's trying (laughs) to avoid censure. And then you have, so these is that, that, you know, sources that we find that have these type of also uh, category. And then the third category is the Christian or symbolical or allegorical um, placardary. um, because we find lapidaries in which each apostle is identified with a specific stone. If you think of that, even the heavenly Jerusalem is conceived as having been built on with gates, uh, and each gate is made to correspond to a specific stone. So there is that uh, corresponds to the uh, pearl or emerald. The Morgan Beatus at the, um, uh, at the Morgan Library in New York has this beautiful illustration of the heavenly Jerusalem with the gates associated with specific stones, right? So we have these three major categories that when we look at lapidaries that we can deal with. And clearly, Leonardo is dealing mostly with the first and second categories. And when it comes to the second category, the magical category, where we have basically discussions of amulets and talismans, we're also dealing with different types of m- magical um, lapidaries. Not every magical lapidary deals with images, and not every magical lapidary. So some will deal with, hey, the... Um, Uh, The specific stones or uh, minerals can have these magical properties, protect you from witches, protect you from witchcraft, but it does not have to have any images or no images are described. But in some magical categories or in some of these um, lapidaries, we do have descriptions of images. And in some, we also have descriptions of rituals, that need to be performed in order for the image to be activated. Now, Leonardo, basically, I think only once in the book, uh, truly mentions an activation of an image or a ritual. Even like the, the image needs to be carved when the moon, you know, is at a specific phase? So when there are specific also astrological conditions, for the most part, he kind of avoids any kind of description like that. And I think he does that because just before him, the Florentine philosopher and writer Massilio Ficino who had written a book called The Vita Libri Tres, so these three books on life, sort of like a manual on leading a good life, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. Both from a physical point of view, intellectual point of view, and he discusses properties of stones and various rituals that could be performed. Well, the book was ended up on the index of forbidden books. And after six months that the book had been published, the author had to retract it uh, in order to obviously save his life as well and avoid uh, greater problems. So I think Leonardi is a very... Um, very aware of what can happen so he will tell you especially in book three if you find a stone that has an image of uh let's say a stag or a hunter uh this image carved on jasper so it tells you also the specific type of stone that it needs to be carved on has the virtue of freeing anyone tormented by spirits Right. So, but he doesn't tell you how you should carve it, when you should carve it. Um, He avoids any kind of discussion. And I think that's done on purpose. Of course, I cannot be 100 percent sure. Right. I think there are some moments and I'm trying to see um, uh, like this passage here Uh, where he says, um, this is uh, Book 3, and the chapter is Chapter 4, where he discusses how uh, the images carved on the stone receive these virtues. And he says, therefore, since stones are material things, they receive the virtue from the matter they are made of. So, first of all, that's why they tell you in order to have the specific protection from, let's say, ill effects of spirits or magic, you might want to carve it on Jasper, right? Because Jasper itself already has a specific
3: virtues. Then,
2: uh, let's see, they receive the virtue from matter they're made of, as well as from their specific form, depending on how reason intervenes. Therefore, they are not devoid of the influence of the stars that always affects this lower world. Mm -hmm. So I'm going from that maxim of what is above, uh, so is below, right? The tabula uh, smaragdina, the emerald tablet that so many of these magical manuals mention as the principle by which these images can carry the powers of the stars. So you could have images in which you have a stone uh, where there is the image of a lion, and this is an astrological reference to the sign Leo, or you may have the more... Uh, uh, nothing so not such a direct and more indirect reference to these heavenly and astrological um, influences right so for example let me see yeah uh, these are um interesting as well because they are Images that come from clearly uh, not only Roman antiquity, but also Alexandrine culture. The image of a man with a lion's face, eagle's feet, and under its feet a two-headed dragon with an unfurled tail, and the man's hand holds a baton with which he hits the dragon's head. If The image is sculpted on crystal or any precious stone bound in brass with some mask and amber placed under the stone. So it's telling you also not only the type of stone, but how you should wear it, uh, how you can activate it. We have mask and amber that needs to be placed under the stone. If worn, it will bend both sexes to the wearer's will spirits will obey him and he will gain great wealth Right, so you cannot get the sense of how they are um, how these images are somehow drawing energies from the moment in which they were carved even though he doesn't describe it but then how you activate it how you wear it
1: mm-hmm. So it feels like uh, this is a manual for doing magic that manages to just kind of sneak past that. Our- yeah. Our- because, you know,
2: it, uh, we should also mention that he writes and dedicates this book to Cesare Borgia. Cesare Borgia is the illegitimate son of Pope Alexander IV uh, aboard the Borgia Pope. And and uh, the Borgias already had a reputation, or at least had come down to us, with a reputation for being involved with black magic. So I think the author is also trying to be very careful. Um, he starts the book, he wrote the book, probably, be, I'm pretty sure he must have begun the book, under the previous lord of Pesaro, Giovanni Sforza. And was probably meant to be dedicated originally to him. But as he's riding, at certain point um, Pesaro is conquered by Alessandro, Borgia, and the Sforza are ousted from the city. So here you have a physician who was the court physician of first Costanzo Sforza then Giovanni Sforza now he has a new lord uh, whose reputation has been one is one of loving stones and jewels there are wonderful descriptions of Alexa, uh, of um, Cesare um, bedecked in all sorts of stones from literally up to boots and at the same time you know he is the illegitimate son of a pope who is you know the gossip says he's also involved with that magic so i imagine he is threading very carefully he wants to be he wants to ingratiate himself to this new lord he dedicates the book to him but then there is no discussion no um, direct discussion of magic so we basically have a discussion if you will of all sorts of uh, talismans um, and in references that clearly like the one that i just read that suggest that they are aware that certain actions need to be taken in order to activate these talismans which are mostly all the ones that he describes are mostly rings so, so worn on the hand, which I think that's also very fascinating, right?
1: Yeah. What's the difference between an amulet and a talisman? That's a very good
2: question. I think that we, you know, if we looked at the literature on the subject, we would oftentimes find contradictory descriptions or contradictory classifications. For the most part, the, the Pretty much around, you know, we look at the scholarship around the 1980s, maybe even a little bit earlier, the 70s, but pretty much by 1980s, that the the main difference was thought to be one of materials. That is that the amulet was in stone and the talisman was in metal. But most recently, uh, Brian Kopenhanger has suggested that to really, that, and, I, and I tend to agree with him, that the difference is really a question of whether we have an image or not. So the amulets, you know, um, are stones that can be worn on the body and where no, there is no sign or image, whereas the talisman, bears an image. Now, most of the times when we have an image, mm-hmm. this suggests that there is activation, so that some sort of practice is also being born in mind, both carving the image at a specific time when we have, you know, conjunctions of the stars or heavenly the influences that are taken into account, or once also that image is carved, other activations of fumigations or incantations that might be performed, maybe privately, you know, the way you might even touch or rub the ring or uh, say privately uh, some incantation in order to activate the image.
3: Um,
2: So then we're dealing more with talismans when it comes to images. So... With Leonardi, we are really encountering. Book two is really a description of, if you will, uh, of stones that could be the raw stone, so could be used as an um, as a, uh, amulet, and then we get into the talismans in book three.
1: So if I say have rose crystal, like which is supposed to bring love, and I just happen to have that that would be an amulet that might be working if I do something with it in a full moon now I've now I'm doing magic that's
2: right now you're doing magic and I think that's an important difference I thank you for making that clear because I think it's a problem also for you know um, some of the lapidary writers some of the authors are clerics you know we have bishop marbaud right um so one of the things that scholars have wrestled with is also what is the position of the church in relationship to these materials and it seems to go back to something that Augustine says, which is that we can have stones that have wondrous properties. Nobody can deny that the magnet has the power to attract, right? So, if God created the magnet, then God must have put these essence, this energy, this virtue, this occult property within it. So it's okay; it's perfectly fine. It is in keeping or in accordance with God's will. Once we go to the image making, we are now doing, as you said, we're doing magic because we're also tampering, you know, we are altering, if you will, uh, God's will to a certain extent. We're trying to maybe harness the, the world of the spirits.
1: All right. My, and another question, um. Is there? These are representational as well, and I'm kind of wondering how you, who are trained as an art historian, came yeah. across this. How did you come to to find this book and decide you should translate it and edit? Um. Yeah, uh, it was very
2: fascinating. There was at an exhibition in Florence at the Pitti Palace, and there was an exhibition of the jewels of the Medici. And they were looking at all these, you know, beautiful cameos and incredible carved, uh, both rings and bruches. And at certain point in that uh, one of the labels that was mentioned that um, many of these stones were believed to have occult uh, properties. So that these were not just decorative jewels, but rather they had more significance, more importance than what might meet the eye and the kind of exhibition that they had mounted together. And then that really fascinated me. And they mentioned, once I got the Cavaliers and the, uh, the exhibition, they did mention uh, mm-hmm. that some of these virtues were discussed in lapidaries like the one of uh, Leonardo, of Camillo Leonardi. And from then on, I went into a little like Alice in Wonderland, the rabbit hole, because I had never realized that there. Or, and i strongly believe that images like of even allegorical figures not not just of uh sitters like in portraits you know, we see them oftentimes with rings or uh, certain bruches that are represented and you know art historians we visually analyze them as symbols that are identifiers of the particular family of the sitters or particular ideas allegorical Ideas that the sitters want us to be aware of, you know. But it had never occurred to me that these might actually be protective images, protective talismans or amulets, that these were also meant to be, uh, um, uh, show us a different realm that maybe for the viewer of the time would have been immediately visible and clearly understandable, right? Um, so I started looking into it and discovered that uh, it was common practice. For example, for uh, the elite class uh, um, collectors of the time, like uh, Lorenzo de Medici, uh, like the Pope, like the um, the Borgias, um, to be first of all cured or healed or treated with. Potions made of ground precious stones. So you could have potions of ground emeralds and rubies and uh, pearls. And these concoctions would be then ingested, believing that they would address a specific ailment. On the other hand, in reading, for example, the biography of Cellini, I also discovered that Cellini, while in jail at a certain point, believes that he had um, an attempt on his life had been made by poisoning him with diamonds, grinding the diamonds really fine and putting him in, uh, in his food. So this really piqued my interest. And I said, there is more here that I'm aware of. So as an art historian, I wanted to understand, could we be seeing in these images something more than just a display of Mm wealth? That, hey, I have wonderful rubies and emeralds and I can wear them on my fingers, right? And lo and behold, what's also interesting is that as I read the manual, um, uh, Leonardi does mention actually artists who are involved in creating images for rings. So for these type of talismans, he does not say, "Hey, these artists create." talismans. But what he does tell us is he gives us a sort of history, like an art historical lecture at a certain point and says, you know, the ancient Roman did this, the uh, Israelites did this, and then he says, we come to the 15th century and he gives us name there. So he tells us Annichini di Ferrara, Tagliacarne in Genoa, Francesco Bologna, non in Francia, Leonardo da Vinci. And that was also like, wait a second, this is also mentioning very important topics, he mentions Mantegna. So we find that, um, you know, Leonardi, for example, I'm sorry, not Leonardi, but Leonardo da Vinci had always been interested for example in the images that naturally occur in stones like in agates yeah. where mm-hmm. you kind of have that fern-like patterns so I think from there it's not a big jump to see how artists who are interested in this kind of naturally occurring images fossils then all of a sudden come to also perhaps create as well images that might not just be decorative but then might also uh, be concerned with channeling magical astrological um, virtues.
1: Hmm. Yeah. And I mean, there's something there about like the wel- the wealthy and their ability to display wealth, their ability to wield power. Um, That's right. That's right. Um, you know,
2: even like uh, to stay in the area where uh leonardi was active uh these not far from urbino and you think about the uh, beautiful piero della francesca's uh altarpiece of um the madonna and then we have federico da montefeltro kneeling uh to one side along with his wife Battista sforza and if i'm not mistaken if i'm not recalling i'm wrong there is this large huge a um, ostrich egg that is also hanging, you know, right from the uh, front down uh, above the Madonna, and, and you start finding that corals, ostrich eggs, all of these objects could have these really interesting um function on the one hand they are symbolic in that classic artist, you know art history iconographical idea but on the other you know that that coral was a representative yes of the passion of christ but on the other it had also um our protective powers against all evil right so you find that there is this Uh, aspect of magic that is not far from religion. It's actually intertwined with it. I think going back to what we were saying before also with Augustine that if God put his virtues there then it's perfectly legitimate, right? We can use them. So in the collection of somebody like Lawrence so the Medici you find the unicorn horns or what they believed were unicorn horns right they're not collecting it just because it's a rare item and it's quite unique to have the unicorn horns but because they believe it also has properties
1: yeah all right that's wonderful this is probably a good place to kind of to stop and I've, I've taken up more than enough of your time mm. we have just uh, one more question I know you're headed down to C- to Sicily um what are you going to work on what's working what are you working on the Okay, so going from
2: uh, this interest in the um, in stones, um, as I was mentioning, I was actually raised in uh, Sicily, and in Syracuse, in the cathedral of Syracuse, there is a large silver simulacrum of the Saint uh, Lucy, Santa Lucia. And it's a, it's a Baroque simulacrum, all in silver, but it's bedecked with all sorts of stones and jewels. And so I became interested, especially after this, in understanding a little bit better than how do these, um, what is the roles, I mean, of uh, this kind of large, decorative, if you will, campaign on a silver signing simulacrum, uh, both in terms of gems. I uh, already know that, for example, these have been donated by wealthy families through the centuries as ex-votos, so they're not original to the statue. But now they are seen as part and parcel of the simulacrum. And the simulacrum is still used today. So it's still brought into procession um, three to four times um uh, a year so i'm really interested now to look also at the sort of like long life of an object long life of uh we would call it if it was in a museum an art historical objects but it's a religious and liturgical object right in which we have a conflation of both popular devotion, uh, orthodox or religious beliefs, and you know the accretion of time. Um, so I just kind of want to look at that. I'm not sure what will emerge from it. So I'm going to look into its, um, um, its commissioning, how it was created when it was made, how it's been used. I'm going to start with how it's been used through the centuries.
1: Then we'll see from there. (laughs) Wow, that sounds fabulous. And Sicily is a wonderful place to work. All right. Uh, Liliana, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been an absolute delight.
2: Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed myself. (laughs) All
1: right. Uh, And take care. Ciao, ciao. Thank you. Ciao.